0: Today's reading is from Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds." Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: A number of weeks ago, we told you uh, that we would love at some point uh, to be able to do a block party and reach out into our local community, perhaps go door to door and uh, just take a step towards our neighbor and invite them to maybe, you know, just some barbecue and a, a bounce house and begin to get to know who it is that is surrounding us. We occupy some unique real estate in Rockwall. If you look at who surrounds us, on one side, you have predominantly white and wealthy, and on the other side, you have predominantly minority. You have Section 8 housing. So for us to consider the book of Acts, it stirred us to, to ask the questions of how can we take those first steps to step towards our community? How can we be willing to put ourselves in a position in which the Spirit promises to work? We don't have to have a great grand vision. If you look at Paul, especially in his second missionary journey, what do you see? He just takes that first step. Even if he did have a great you know, vision and plan, the Spirit changed it every time. He'd close one door and open up another. But he was continuously willing to take that first step and go and then go walk through those doors that the Spirit allowed. And so we would ask ourselves that same question of how could we move towards our neighbor and take that first step. And perhaps part of it is being able to, just given the demographics uh, and diversity, is it might be helpful to partner with some churches. And so uh, on April 29th, I went to go visit one of those churches and, and worship with them. And it was New Caledonia Baptist Church over on Bourne Street. No idea what to expect. So I pull up, there's one car in the parking lot. And so I didn't know if anybody, if they were even holding a service that day. But the door was unlocked and so I walked into their foyer and then I heard some people kind of talking. and So I walked in and I didn't know if I was interrupting a Sunday school or something, but I walked in in the back of the sanctuary and I just saw three little old ladies just kind of slowly turn to see who it was that, that walked in. And so I, you know, I waved and uh, just kind of nodded, and I sat down in the back pew. And then the, one of the ladies just turned to me, and she said, And how are you doing today? And I said, I'm, I'm doing fine. And I said, How are you? She said, I'm doing great. I'm here. And then the pastor, who was a, an elderly man, kind of you know, took his time coming back to me and, and said hello and just gave me an incredibly warm greeting. And I said, You know, Reverend, how many years have you been here And he said, I've ministered at this church for 60 years, 60 years. And the next week they're having a 60th uh, ministry anniversary at that church. And then as the people started to come in, uh, there was 12 of us total worshiping that, that day on that service. And they worshiped essentially the same way that we do, called to worship, confession. They took time to pray together. It took time to actually allow people to stand up and say what their needs were and what their requests were. And one woman, you know, and a lot of these people have tremendous needs and um, just need after need after need. And one woman who was young stood up. Her name was Diamond. She lost everything in Hurricane Harvey and she was asking for prayer because she had to give up her kids to the state because she couldn't support them. So until she can get back on her feet, she wants to get her, she's asking for prayer to get back on her feet so she can get her kids again. The funny thing is, is these people are not there because that church offers them anything. So if you look at the back of that stage in, in, um, in their sanctuary, it has a sign that said, last week's attendance, five people. Last week's offering, $25. That church isn't doing anything to put a dent in their knee. I and mean, that church doesn't have connections They don't have a Jake Abbott to call and say, hey, I have this need. They don't have a a CPA that they can go to. They don't have wealth that they could ask the church to help out with. They just have this faith that was really moving to me. Just the simplicity of coming and trusting in Jesus. It's powerful. And I thought of the church in Revelation 3 where where Jesus says to the church that's suffering in Philadelphia, he says, I know you have but little power but you have not forsaken my word and you, and, he- and you have held fast to my name. And then the pastor got up and had his sermon and talked about suffering and how he'd fallen on hard times, the church had fallen on hard times and how he remembered when that church was full and then now they're in the situation they are and yet he said, we still must gather to worship because God is in the blessing business. And it was just very stirring for me. And I kept thinking while I was there, what is it in the end that makes a church successful in the eyes of Christ. We often want to think of success in non-essentials. Church size, congregation size, budget size, number of programs. But, you know, simple numerics and crowd size, do they really mean anything for a man who is willing to die completely abandoned on a cross? What matters to him? What is it that he takes delight in in the life of his people? And I needed that church in the same way that we need the book of Acts, is that it strips away the glitz and the glamour when those things didn't exist that we often get caught up with, and it gets us back to the fundamentals of our faith. It shows us at a time in which all people have is their faith and one another. And so what is it that a church looks like in which Christ takes delight? We've been following uh, Paul on a second missionary journey, and um, in today's passage, he comes to Thessalonica. I almost skipped this passage because it's actually quite simple and straightforward in some ways. But if we look at Thessalonica and Paul's experience in Berea, it does help us understand that question of what a people look like that Christ takes delight in because Luke will go out of his way to describe the, the Berean believers in a way that he doesn't describe any other people in the book of Acts. But first, Paul comes to Thessalonica. It was a powerful city. It was a capital city. It was a political city. And Paul comes in and he goes to the synagogue like he does in every other city. And he says that he spends three, uh, three Sabbaths with them, reasoning with them. That the Christ had to suffer, the Christ rose from the dead, and Jesus is the Christ or Messiah. And out of that, he has a number of converts. And of course, like we've seen before, the Jews get jealous. They get jealous of, of their success. And so they try and find Paul and Timothy at the house of Jason where they're staying, but they can't find him. So they drag Jason to the city magistrates. And they accuse Paul and Silas of turning the world upside down because they are acting against the decrees of Caesar by saying there's another king, or more literally, they're saying there's another emperor, and his name is Jesus. And this puts the city magistrates on edge, and it says they're greatly disturbed. Now, why are they so disturbed? Well, if, you, if we know anything about the Roman Empire, we know that their greatest fear was dissension. Their greatest fear was any sort of civil unrest, and they were suspicious of any social gathering that might be centered around allegiance to another king, another ruler, other than Caesar, because that would have happened all the time. They had to be suspicious of it, because as the, as the Roman Empire spread, they conquered people after people after people, and so how do they suppress uprisings? Well, one of the ways they would do it is they would allow these people to keep morale up by letting them worship the gods of uh, their gods, without imposing Roman gods upon them, they'd let them worship in their religion, but they had to do it uh, under strict circumstances. They had to do it quietly, and they only they had to follow the rules of the Roman Empire. But Judaism was different, because under Herod the Great, he was influential years before years before Jesus came along, and he actually won the religio licita status, a licensed religious status for Judaism, which meant that it could be practiced all throughout. The empire. Now, I say that because that's a pretty powerful motive for the Jews to maintain that freedom. And so, at this point in time, the Jews learned how to play the Roman game of power. And at this point, their Judaism had, a, had a essentially dissolved into a, a civil religion. One part religious devotion, one part political power and positioning, one part economic status and gain. So much so, that when Jesus describes these synagogues twice in these letters to Revelation, he calls them synagogues of Satan. It's a place of completely other than what God had intended for his people to be. And we see it once again. They drag uh, Jason before the magistrates and the Jews show where their devotion lies. It's in upholding the decrees of Caesar, not Jesus. So if you think about that hypocrisy for a second... The Jews, for centuries, have waited for a Messiah to come, rescue them from foreign rulers, and make them the greatest nation on earth again. That's what they wanted. so they prayed for. That's what they hoped for. That's why they followed the law so strictly. That was, everything came down to that. But what do we see? Just like Jesus at his trial, when the Jews say, we have no king but Caesar, the Jews in Thessalonica do the exact same thing. Every time they have the opportunity to choose Christ and embrace him, they choose Caesar every time. Because the message of the gospel and accepting Christ was way too threatening to this lifestyle that they'd come to enjoy. They'd rather be ruled by another king. But they're even more hypocritical in this passage because of the events that you see. So they accuse Paul and Silas of what? Turning the world upside down by threatening the decrees of Caesar. But what did they do? They started a mob. So in verse five, they go and it says they... they, uh, what was, were these? The wicked men of the rabble, which essentially is just a way of saying they went and they got evil men that would do anything to make a buck. They started a mob. They stormed the house of Jason, brought him before the magistrates. And what do they do? They put the, city, the entire city in an uproar as they are accusing Paul and Silas of causing an uproar. The Jews know how to play the game. And all of this, why? Because their heart is consumed with jealousy. Their heart, they are completely unaware of what is going on in their heart. And their real desire is power, not God's promises. The gospel was way too disruptive to their status quo. So if we consider ourselves for a second, and how can this challenge us to be the people that Jesus would want us to be, and people that he takes delight in? Well, where is your heart ruled? What part of your heart is ruled by another king? What part of your heart is ruled by another ruler other than Jesus? You might know exactly what it is right now. There's another part of you that might be like, I don't really know what it is, but I know there might be something there. Well, let's try and identify it by just considering the events of this passage and start with another question. What part of your life is in chaos? Where, Where do you feel that uproar in your heart? where do you feel that unsettledness? Where is your heart chaotic? Perhaps the reason it's there is because just like these Jews, that chaos, that uproar is self-induced because that's the part of your heart you've given to another king. And, it's the, and that other king is the one that determines your behavior, how you use your time, your money, your resources, your wealth, and that's the game you play. So, for instance, you, maybe you get anxious around certain people because you're utterly ruled by their opinion of you. And you will do anything to match the image that they want you to be. And so that's the game you play. You might feel completely untethered whenever you look at your bank account because you're ruled by financial security or you're ruled by a certain level of wealth that you have to have. And that's the game you play. And whatever it is, that game you play, it does not. It determine how you use your resources, your time, your money, and your energy, just like it did the Jews, Where is that uproar in your heart? Because a church that Christ delights in, a people that bring him joy, are a people that are willing to examine their hearts and find those desires and hopes and motives that they've rested upon another king, that they've placed in something else. Because you have a commandment hanging over your head to love God with all your heart. Explain how you could possibly do that if you're never willing to examine it or think about it or consider how you feel. Perhaps our heart is speaking to us to help us understand how we can move towards Christ in a new way. And the unexamined heart runs the danger of having really no interest at all in the kingship of Christ because we just end up playing another game, trying to get what we want on our terms. Are you willing to be one that would examine their heart and say, Christ, what? Christ, my King, my master, what am I withholding from you? It's kind of a dangerous question. I think we all know that. No the last place I think we ever want to look is in the mirror. We just don't like to examine our hearts, and I think for a number of reasons. Self reflection honestly is one of the most uh, is one of the most common things I come across in, in ministry is an unwillingness to be self-reflective and examine the heart because it feels threatening. And I think one of the biggest reasons it feels that way is because to do that, we inevitably have to face some of the disappointments that lie beneath the surface of life that we live with. And disappointment, I think, is far more common in our culture than and even in our lives than we would readily admit. And when we examine our hearts, we're confronted with that disappointment. Why? Because if we're ruled by another king, then we live in that tension of feeling like we have to have something. We have to have it, and we would do anything to have it, and we want it, and we crave it, and yet at the same time knowing that it doesn't pay what it promises. And so we end up giving ourselves to things that don't satisfy, and we find ourselves disappointed. We find ourselves dissatisfied and wanting more. And so, you know, who wants to face disappointment? Who wants to face the fact that There's disappointment in my heart that I know that next bottle of wine isn't going to satisfy me, but I really hope it will. Or I know that, uh, you know, nothing I ever buy ever makes me feel more than a moment's joy, and yet I can't stop shopping. Or there's never been, you know, there's only disappointment in continuously seeking the affirmation from others that I crave and I hang on every word, and yet I know it never, ever is enough. And when we're not willing to be honest about the disappointment that we feel, I think we just end up maintaining the status quo. Because if we give ourselves to other things and we trust that they will satisfy us, we know that they won't. So perhaps that disappointment of the things that we give ourselves to or the expectations that we have for how life should have turned out or for our spouse or our marriage, maybe we recognize that we've given it to another king and so it's important to recognize that disappointment because that's when we finally are willing to to admit that life on our terms doesn't work. It just never has worked and it never will. And unless we're willing to recognize, yeah, I do wish life was different in a lot of ways then what need do you have to be here? Because I think that that disappointment and that dissatisfaction in large part is why I believe the Bereans are spoken of so well. It's why they were so receptive and so hungry for the gospel and why Luke describes them in terms that he doesn't describe any other people in the book of Acts. I think they were disappointed with the status quo of life and Roman culture and all that it offered them and they desired something more. And they didn't run from that disappointment. They didn't run from that and try and ignore it. They embraced it. And it allowed them to have ears to hear of another king and another life. And that point is subtle, but I think it's there. If you consider who it is that Luke, if you notice who it is that he points out and who he describes that believe at both Thessalonica and Berea, who is it? We have verse 4, not a few of the leading women. And then verse 12, not a few Greek women of high standing. So Luke goes out of his way to point out that prominent women are believing in the gospel. Why would he do that? Why would he point out women? You do not point women out 2,000 years ago. And, but Luke goes out of his way to do so. And the reason is because, you know back then, in, ancient, in essentially every ancient culture, women were not that much higher on the social ladder than slaves and bond servants. They didn't make their own decisions. They were controlled. They were considered a possession. They were marginalized. They did not have rights and privileges. And Luke points out that these women were also, that were coming to believe, were also prominent. They're prominent women, which meant that they had tasted the good life of Roman culture. They attended you know, the galas, the fundraisers, the exclusive holiday parties. They tasted the best that Rome had to offer. And yet it had to not be enough for them. They must have been disappointed and dissatisfied and were willing to recognize that and they desired something more because we have to remember the consequences of what it meant for them to become a Christian in their context. Because for them to believe in this other king that Paul talked about, they would have to leave all of that behind. They would have to say goodbye to that life. Because remember, the consequences of becoming a Christian that we've previously discussed, particularly with the Jerusalem Council, is that they had to pull away from the temple cult. They had to pull away from all of its rituals, all of its practices, and remove themselves from the very center of society, of which they were previously a prominent part. Because the temples were where you, you know, offered sacrifices and then you made your business deals at the same time. The temple was where you, you, know, you mingled with officials, you sought favors, you sought influence, you sought power. It's where all the best events and parties took place because it was the center of power, economics, and status. And as prominent women, they experienced all of that and they gave it up, which means they were no longer invited to those parties. The invitation stopped coming. Their friendships changed. Their status diminished. And probably their husbands weren't saved either or else their husbands would have been mentioned. They also chose even further ostracization and marginalization by the fact that they made this bold claim to follow a new man and a new king. But what was so compelling about Paul's preaching that would make them make that decision? Well, what has Paul been preaching? Well, we've already noted in verse 3, or if we note in verse 3, that Paul has been preaching about the suffering Messiah, that the Christ had to suffer, which most likely is a reference to the suffering servant passages in Isaiah words of which you probably know well, because they came and they heard of one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. And Paul is preaching and saying to them, behold, this is your king. This is your emperor. If you are completely satisfied in life, then you have no business even remotely considering this king. And if you, you know, are looking to make your your home in this world, then that king of Paul will always be considered a threat because he's always asking you to give up the things for this world while you're trying to hoard them. And perhaps... You know, this invitation to recognize the dissatisfaction and disappointment that lies beneath the surface is a really powerful place to start because that's when we, you know, one, we recognize that life doesn't work on our terms and it's not working, but also we might be ready for that transfer of power to another king. And these women were ready for a transfer of power because they laid aside their old life to embrace a new one. Because this man was better than any they'd ever encountered and he was better than any king that ever ruled over them. They were hungry for new life. If you consider the way that they searched the scriptures, verse 11, they received the word with all eagerness and examined the scriptures daily. And notice what sets the Bereans apart. In Thessalonica, they just talked about it on the Sabbath. But in Berea, they talked about it each and every day. And they came back day after day to try to understand what all of this meant because it it didn't just affect one day of the week. They recognized it affected every day of the week. And they were, you know, they didn't, they didn't say, you know, Paul, you really gave us something to think about. Let's take it up next week. No, they had an urgency to how they went about understanding the scriptures because they hungered probably for something that affected everyday life. And any God that doesn't affect everyday life is not a God worth following. And I think that that's where we have to recognize that we come to the scriptures rightly and correctly. Not to learn, but to know how to live. Because you don't come to the scriptures with the hunger of the Bereans unless you are hopeful that somehow life could be different, that there's something better than the status quo. And a people that are willing, or a, a, a people that Christ delights in, are a people that are willing to examine the scriptures because they're tired of the status quo of life. And they trust that that book tells you of a better life. And perhaps the reason, if you find yourself in a spot where you don't examine the scriptures, it's because you don't actually believe it offers a better life. You don't believe that it offers you life and freedom. And so, of course, why would you transfer power to a suffering king that tells you not to live for this world but one to come? I would encourage you that those parts of our hearts that, you know, maybe being honest this morning and surveying your heart and examining those places that are chaotic and trying to identify those things you've given yourselves to that don't satisfy and disappoint you is important. And it's not something to ignore. Because I think that's exactly where a suffering king likes to meet us in all the ways that we recognize this world will never be enough. It will never be enough for you. And when we say I want more, then he's ready to come and to move towards you. To embrace disappointment is a powerful thing. You may not know the name of Kim Fontai, but I bet you've seen her picture. She goes by the well, she went by the name of Napalm Girl. In nineteen seventy-two, during the Vietnam War, Nick Uh was a photographer and he took a picture of uh, Vietnamese children. Uh, running down a road, scared, screaming, crying. And behind them is this wall of smoke because their village had just been bombed. And in the center of the picture was Kim Fontai. She was nine years old, screaming. She was naked. And her entire back of her body was completely covered in napalm as it went off in her village. She said that even this day, almost 50 years later, she says that even now, to this day, she still gets treatment for those scars. And she said after the war, she said her life completely fell apart, physically and spiritually. Physically because, you know, she had to take constant burn baths to eat away the dead skin. Her skin constantly burned and itched. And she said she couldn't actually sweat because of her scars, and so she would just bake in the Vietnamese sun and humidity. She said, she said that was just the icing on the cake because the real issue that she struggled with was just the pain of having fell apart spiritually and just sinking to the utter depths of the human soul as a result of what happened to her. She said she was raised in the cow die religion and that every day for years she would pray to the gods that she thought ruled over her, over and over and over, asking God for healing and asking him for peace. And she she said that by the end of, you know, about a decade of praying, she realized that her gods Didn't care for her. They didn't care about her suffering. And out of that disappointment, she said she fell into a deep, dark abyss of anger, resentment, uh, bitterness. And this is what she wrote. She said, I was as alone as a person can be. I could not turn to a friend, for nobody wished to befriend me. I was toxic, and everyone knew it. To be near me was to be near hardship. Wise people stayed far away. I was all alone atop a mountain of rage. To be near her was to be near hardship. And that's exactly where Christ met her. She got to the point where she was so hungry for just anything better that she goes to the local library in Saigon and she pulls down every book that she can on every single religion. She reads all these books and she finally comes to a copy of the New Testament. She starts reading the Gospels and she said she never put it down. And she said she came to uh, uh, these two points that just stood with her, and she couldn't get him out of her mind, was the fact that Jesus would say, I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No other way except through me. That's a bold claim. But she said the fact that he backed that up by his willingness to suffer, to be rejected, scorned, beaten, abandoned, tortured, wrongfully accused, and executed unjustly, and suffer that much, she said, the only thing I could think of was that the only way somebody would go through all of that and make that claim as if it's true. That the one thing that had to be true was his willingness to suffer. And it's a powerful thing that she experienced when she describes her testimony because she gave her life to Christ on Christmas Eve in 1982. She accepted Christ as her king. And she said over the last 45 years, she's moved to a place in which she has, has had far more of a profound peace than she ever had the pain. She asked for healing and she asked for peace. If you want to know the power of the king, it's the fact that she didn't get healing and she still had peace. And if you think about uh, the extraordinariness of that fact, consider let me put it in her words. Today I thank God for that picture, even though that picture is always a reminder of how much pain I've endured. I thank God for that picture. I thank God for everything, even for that road, especially for that road. Behold the power of another king. This morning, uh, where are you at? Are you disappointed with the status quo of life? Maybe it's an opportunity to be honest about that this morning. To be honest, you know, I'm disappointed about the status quo of my marriage. I'm not looking to get a divorce. I'm just, I want more. I'm disappointed with the status quo of my parenting, with my relationships and community. I'm disappointed with the status quo of my addictions. I'm disappointed in the status quo of other rulers. Embrace that disappointment because the person who wants to meet you right there is a man of sorrows, a man of grief, and he bore all of that so that you would, so that you might know joy and life everlasting. The place you would find him is if you would embrace that disappointment is that you would dive deeply into the scriptures because it tells you of another life because there is another king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are unlike other kings. We thank you for the day in which the only king that will be left is you. There's many thrones in our hearts and we ask that you would begin and continue to remove them from our hearts. True life is found uh, only in you and yet sometimes and regularly we seek it in other places. We thank you that you tasted what you tasted so that we might taste life and joy everlasting. Would you give us a loose grip on the things of this world? Would you remind us that we're created for another world, one where the law is love and justice and mercy reign. We look forward to that day. We look forward to the day in which we will be finally and fully and completely in the presence of our King. But until then, would you feed us at this table that we might be strengthened for that journey. We pray for New Caledonia Baptist Church and that you would bless them in their need. And we ask that you would help us to reach this community with the news of another king. We ask all this in Christ's name and everybody said, amen.